Exodus chapter 2 and verse uh, 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went, and he took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Isn't that strange? I've got a bonny baby here. We'll hide him for three months. Uh, when, when she uh, could hide him no longer, she took him. Uh, um, uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes. She daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it amongst the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Where am I on that one? Five. Okay. Now the, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river. While, uh, um, sorry, the daughter of, uh, now the daughter, get it right, Nigel. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket amongst the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw a child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the child went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter um, said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the beginning of a new series where we're going to be looking at the life of Moses Everyone who's preaching is going to be following the same theme, just, to, just so that you might be helped out a little bit with this. I've got the birth of Moses. Dave Simpkins has got the plagues. <laughs> you can decide which plague Dave Simpkins has got um, if you get locked in the toilet here with, it, with him. So you can have a look. So, but before we look at the birth of Moses, I'd like to spend some time looking uh, at the circumstances uh, surrounding uh, his birth. Now, Exodus chapter 1 and verse 8 tells us that there arose a new king over Egypt, or in Egypt. And new kings always make their mark. So what would have happened in these past few weeks in the White House in America is that the First Lady would have moved in. And the First Lady will have changed all sorts of things in the White House, mainly because Mrs. Bush had her way for a certain amount of time. And there are certain things that that the First Lady is allowed to change. And also that he's allowed to change. So, for instance, he, he can change the decor of the Oval Office. She can change the china. She is allowed also to change part of the garden, but not all of it. And so, what happens when you get a new king coming in is that there can be swift changes, which is actually what happened in Egypt. 
But this was a new king who did not know Joseph. Now, if you, you don't have to turn to this. Joseph, Genesis chapter 41 and verse 40. This is, uh, this is the current Pharaoh speaking uh, uh, in regard to Joseph, saying to him, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. So Joseph had risen to number two in Egypt. Why had he done that? Because if you remember, he'd interpreted from prison um, the Pharaoh's dreams, revealing seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And the following uh, at, the, at the point of the famine, if you remember the story, Joseph's family eventually come and live with him. And he gathers at that point about 70 of them. So about 70 uh, of his family members that he's now caring for in the, in the period of famine in Egypt. And Joseph dies eventually at the wonderful old age of 110, having served the Pharaoh having got the respect of him and the nation. And then there's a gap of 70 years. So we're, in our terms, we're talking about perhaps trying to remember things from the 1930s, the 1940s to today. That's all that we're thinking about. Now, most of us will know somebody that knew somebody in the 1930s or 40s. Or if you're Peter, you're probably driving around in something from the 1930s and 40s, just to remind him what that era was like. But 70 years have passed, not much, is it? But now, these 70 people were a large people group. Why had they become a large people group? The reason was that they were fulfilling a promise. The promise that was given to Abraham that they would become like the stars in the sky. The hand of God was upon them. And they were were growing. And they had become a, a great people group. The problem with this is that they'd also become a great threat to the new Pharaoh. And in verse 9 of chapter 1, you'll you'll read this and it says, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of, of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Strange statement, isn't it? It's, it's a distorted statement, but you can just catch his mind. And then he says this, verse 10, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Now the word shrewdly can be read different ways in the Hebrew. It could be a suggestion. So I might say to Phil, hey Phil, we need to deal with these people a little shrewdly. And what we mean in regard to that could be we need to incite some difficulties amongst them. Perhaps spread a few rumours. Perhaps tell a few home truths. Let's unsettle them slightly. So when, when he's talking about this, sort of they know, but they don't know yet. It could also be something like this, Phil, that we're talking to one another, but we need to sort of make some people hate one another here. So if I can tell a story about Maureen Simpkins that can make Steve Hawkins hate her... Impossible. <laughs> 
That's what these words mean, except in the case of Steve Hawkins. The third, the third would be, would actually to be incite racial abuse or violence. So to say amongst them that basically that they are a people group that are a threat, that they are inferior, that, that sort of racial sort of thing, that they are maybe, these are the, the black guys or these are the, the white guys or something that would create some sort of difference. Verse 10 says in, the, in chapter 1, lest they multiply, here's this, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So let's create a little bit of fear. Let's make them fear them. Let's create a little bit of unrest. Let's drop out seeds that will create some problems in the community. Up to this point, no problems. But the leadership, the leadership were creating problems. And he decides, the Pharaoh, as part of his new regime, to create forced labor to build cities. Now we all know what forced labor does. We know that it breaks the spirit of the person. We know that forced labor intentionally shortens the life of people. We know that it creates a superior and an inferior race. And we know quite simply that if they're shattered, they won't fight or raise up against you. And that was the intention, the, the, the mindset of the new pharaoh. But here's the interesting thing, verse 12. But the more they uh, were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And if you read that, when fear is out of control, and when fear is out of control uh, with the nation or the nation's rulers, history teaches us exactly this. That the way that people deal with oppression is to bring harder oppression to the people. Which is what happens. And we can read it here. We can read it later on. It talks about that they began to deal with them ruthlessly, hard and bitterly. <laughs> and it's a little bit of a reflection of, of, of the Acts of the Apostles, isn't it? Oppressed, multiplied. Oppressed, multiplied. That's a little bit of the, uh, of the background. So, the first king of, in, the new king of Egypt, I want to suggest to you, is an individual in the hands of God. It seems unlikely, but I want to suggest it to you. He's not aware of it. He is one fearful, angry, evil king who thinks that he has the upper hand, but in Proverbs it tells us that it is not so, that by me, by our God, kings reign. And this king has done every wicked thing that he can think of and more to the Hebrews. And they are multiplying. That must be so annoying if you are the king. It must be so annoying that your plan A is not going to plan. 
That every time that he brings oppression to a family or to a household, that the next day it appears that there's more of them than there were in the first place. Can you imagine what this guy would have been like in his private chambers with his private sort of advisors around him? He must have really thrown one, mustn't he, at this point. And yet we know that our God is reigning Our God is ruling. Our God is breaking through even into the private chambers of the most evil man on the face of this earth at this point. He's unaware of what God's doing. He's unaware of the God of the Hebrews. He's no ability to read the situation at all. He can't read what God is doing. He Although thinking he's powerful, he's powerless. Although thinking that the Son God will answer him, he's not saying why, doesn't he? But this guy learns nothing. And God is all over the pages in Exodus chapter 1. Screaming, shouting, For this mighty ruler to see God, to look at him and to listen to what he's doing, to learn. And he's having none of it. And the following chapters will show a God who is slow to anger and compassionate and full of mercy, giving this king opportunity after opportunity to respond until eventually... He walks to the foot or the edge of the Red Sea. And then for him, it's all over. All over. And you might say, but Nigel, I'm not actually like him. You know, I, you know I'll never be a pharaoh or I'm not like him. And I'm, you know, please, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not like him. But maybe you and I are more like him than we like to think. Maybe you and I like to do things on our own. Like to make decisions without him. Maybe that we don't draw our strength from the one who gives strength, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Maybe that you don't even notice or are aware of the acts of God that are all around you. Maybe like him, you would prefer to just keep going (laughs) and... Do it your way and see what happens. But you know, for us all, there's a then. Now for the king of Egypt, he was a young then. And for you or me, it might be a young then or an old then. But for all of us, there is a then. We all stand at some point on the edge of the water's of the Red Sea. And who will you have served?
when you put your feet on the edge of the waters of the Red Sea. Perhaps this is your opportunity to look and to listen. And also, we have the security for those that know him, that every king, every ruler, every, every politician, every company ho- owner is the hands of God. And sometimes, you know, we need to revisit that. Who is ruling? Who is ruling? Sometimes we, we you know, you get frustrated. I, don't know, I can do a good shout at the news. Who's ruling? Who's reigning? Our God reigns. Our God reigns. He's in control. Proverbs verse 8, verse 15. By me, kings reign. You must want to wag your finger, don't you? There you go. There you go. Second individual. Uh, in the hands of God are Sifara and Puar. Great names. Verse 15, the kings uh, of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them whose name Shipara and the other one Puar, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them uh, on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives to him and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? Extraordinary. Balmy statement. They've gone into his presence. And the midwife said to Pharaoh, this great king, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, let every son that is born to the Hebrews You shall cast him into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let me just put this into perspective a little bit. This is the king of Egypt. This is not Mr. Bumble in Oliver Twist, who's getting a little bit angry because Oliver Twist happens to ask for a little bit more porridge. This is... One angry, fearful, mighty king. This king would put people to death in his presence to teach people a lesson in obedience. This is the makeup of the Egyptian rule at that time. So if you went before the king... And maybe that you would question him, you could serve as one of those people in his kingdom. And you might get called up one day to find out that your life is lost because the king wants to teach obedience to the people. That's a paid employment in Egyptian rule. That's extraordinary, isn't it? A group of people at the king's pleasure 
so that they might die. And their lives, the midwives' lives are on the line, and yet they seem to fear God more than they fear the king of Egypt. Now, you and I know that their perspective is right, but don't you think that is very scary? Don't you think it's just... I look at it and think, this is balmy, girls. Just go for a run here. But Proverbs chapter 1 says to us this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge. Jerry Bridges, in his book, in regard to the holiness of God, says this, the fear of the Lord is a dominant element in our emotions and attitudes, brought on by a profound sense of the awe of God. If the awe of God is in us, And with us, we will make righteous judgments. Then he goes on and he said, just so that you might know, awe is a deep respect for God. A friend of mine that's in a uh, a pastor of a church in Worthing moved uh, moved out to America to pastor a church in Tornado Alley. I believe that's what, is that what you call it, Claire? It's what he called it. Anyway, Tornado Alley. This is what he said to me afterwards. He said, if you live in Tornado Alley, he said, you don't have a barbecue when the clouds grow black and the wind gets up. (laughs) That was in a, 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 a correspondence that we had with him. And yet, I believe that actually Christians do sometimes have a barbecue and ignore the clouds and the wind. Because... We have a perception, particularly in the the new, if you like, charismatic era, that sort of Jesus is like a cuddly teddy that you take to bed with and squeeze because you need a little bit of reassurance for your life. But the Bible tells us and tells us in here that our God is a consuming fire doesn't just say fire it says consuming fire and what the god uh, and what the, this pharaoh would learn is that and, and moses would learn would be that god is the god of the burning bush he would go on and learn that god is the god of the plagues and the red sea and other awesome events that moses would learn about fire and smoke and miracles and water out of rocks My other daughter, the other one that's not here, Amy, when she was little, and we'll have to edit this out of the, uh, out of the, she, she had a blanket. We used to call it manky blanky, (laughs) because it became manky. I don't know whether moms and dads, they, kids always get one toy, don't they? And it sort of, and we used to wash it on frequent things at times. And she got so attached to this that if you put it in the washing machine, she would stand there going like this, waiting for it to come out. And it, it, was, it was what is commonly known as a comfort blanket. You know, she would rub it at night and do all that sort of stuff with it. We lost one once. Life ended when we lost it. <laughs> you know, 
I sometimes do believe that we think of God in that way. That God basically is the sort of little blanket that we rub every now and again. And we drop him down over here and we do our life and we do our stuff and all that sort of stuff. And they go, oh, Bo, where's my blanket? We go and pick it up and, you know, and we walk around with it for a little while and, and then I feel good. And then I don't need my blanket anymore and that sort of stuff. And I drop it down. Just to let you know, Amy hasn't got monkey blanket anymore. Uh-huh. Uh, she has. <laughs> we, need, and we need to have words when we get home. How can you mock me about my Bible in the outside when you have given a 20-something-year-old, you've slipped manky blanket in? I can't believe her. How can you argue about me and my notebook when you've done that? Just excuse us for a minute. But what I'm trying to say is this. It will not help you if you do not have a healthy respect of God. It will not help you. It does not help you to think that God is your mate. He needs to have something in your mind that he is the awesome God. It will not help you to think just that Jesus is friend of sinners, which he is. Because it is this perspective that helps us to stand before mighty kings. It's that perspective. It's that, the awe of God that says, look at it this. Should I save the Hebrew children or should I, or should I stand before the mighty Pharaoh? We look at what we are and we say, no, I am in awe of God. Bring it on, Pharaoh. And it's this that helps us to say no to unrighteousness, to say yes to righteousness, to say say rubbish to the king and even to mock him. It is awe of God. What makes you righteous? Not manky blanky, but an awe of God. What helps you to deal with sin and wrong things? An awe of God. You think about this. There is the Egyptian parliament. They're all there in the splendor of Egypt. He's standing before these Hebrew women who've stood, who are standing there in this magnificent throne room full of gold. And they stand and they say, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, you know about them? They're vigorous. They give birth just before we get there. These guys are taking the mick out of the Hebrew, out of the Egyptian pharaoh, in the presence of his parliament, if you like. How did they do that? Boldness comes from an awe of God and from a discovery and recovery that the fear of the Lord will build church and plant churches. The fear of the Lord. Let me ask you this. When you make your decisions, do you do them with the fear of the Lord? Our next individuals in the, in the uh, hands of God are Moses' mom and dad. Hebrews 11 verse 23 tells us that by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
Question. Was hiding their son for three months the only thing they did by faith? No. It took faith to live as a slave under a repressive regime. It took faith to take a wife and to marry her in the context of oppression. It took faith and takes faith to make love to your wife or to each other, knowing what will happen or could happen if she became pregnant. It takes faith to give birth to a baby in that context. And yes, it took faith to hide the baby. Later on, it would take faith to place their son in the basket in the Nile. So what is this faith? Faith is not making decisions based on circumstances. If that were true, the people would have never got married. It seems that it's not rational or logical, although it is good to take counsel if you're making faith choices. It is good to weigh up the cost to seek advice from others who've been there before you. Don't do faith alone. That's what the family of God is all about. That's what leaders are there for. They are there to help you through faith choices. But faith is a confidence and an understanding and an experience and reality that God is bigger than the present situation. And therefore, the choice is to trust him and not the circumstances. It may not add up. It sometimes does not make sense. And sometimes what we want to do in church is that we want to make just rational decisions. And actually, if you look at the Bible, (laughs) the people of God have not ever made rational decisions. Hebrews 1 verse 11 says, No faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. And the Greek word for assurance is proof, suggesting proofs of God's faithfulness. And the Greek word for conviction is argument or evidence, suggesting previous experience and success. So I want to suggest to you that firstly, that Moses' mom and dad had experience of faith. They were not doing this suddenly. They had experience. So faith is something that grows in us. I want to ask you, how's your faith growing in you? Has it begun? Is it growing in you? Do you know God in a particular way that you have evidence and proofs of what he has done so that when you're coming to the next thing, you know where you stand? The people of God should be building, if you like, a proof testimony of operations of faith. So that we can move on in him. Because we are supposed to be the community of faith on earth. That's what we represent. When we went to Brintag, we didn't represent help making cakes. We were the people of faith. They make decisions on a rational, understanding basis. We make them because God has told us to do it. And that is the difference between us. And that is how we should be. It's what we're going for. 
And that's why it's going to take faith to take something like Chris said this morning. It's going to take faith in saying, come on, you come with us. Come on, we'll do you good. You come and join this church. Be a part of what this church is doing in regard to church planting. Not just one, but going on and on. And be saying to people, hey, you don't know the Lord. Come on, come and find out what the Lord is doing. Come and see what the Lord is doing. Let's fill the place. But it will take faith to do it. It takes faith Monday morning to deliberately think, I'm going to go get somebody this week. I'm going to go get one. If we all actually applied one bit of faith, can you imagine what next week would look like? So it tells us, and the world suppresses faith. And when we gather, the idea, and one of the things of worship and prophecies and things like that, things that Jenny bought and Chris bought this morning, is so that faith can rise again within us and come into the true being of what we are. So that we can be this people of faith. That's our difference. The difference is that we are called to be the people of faith. Moses is an individual in the hands of God. I think this is incredible. According, if you were an Egyptian, Moses is born to die in the hands of an Egyptian. And the possibility is high. Hidden away for three months from the terror that may visit his friends and his family. Placed into a wicker basket left to the mercy of the river Nile, parentless for a while, floating to where and to whom, in the hot sun of Egypt, with no food or water, it appears that he's abandoned. But as Peter reminded us, no. This little child experiences Emmanuel. God is with him in a basket. In a basket. Isn't that just extraordinary? Every event suggests the opposite. But Emmanuel, God, is with him. Extraordinary, amazing. 1 Peter 5 verse 7 tells us to cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This little one hadn't got the opportunity that you and I have. But God was still Emmanuel. You and I have got the opportunity that this one hasn't got to just say, (laughs) I feel like I've been left in the Nile. Lord. And this is where the rubber meets the road, really. Do you, do I make a practical anxiety transfer from my back to his back? Do I do that? How am I with anxiety? Do I say to anxiety, I'm just going to get home and shout at the wife or the husband 
or somebody else or kick the cat or dog or whatever? Or do I say, no, anxiety, ah, this is where the transfer takes place. This is what happens now. This is what the Bible says. Anxiety, I've I've got to transfer that. And how do you transfer anxiety? The answer is this. I trust that he cares for me. You hang on to anxiety actually because you don't trust that he will care for you. So we're back to faith, isn't it? Faith says, I've got anxiety. Oh, I know. He trains for me. Here, Lord, have this. Here it comes. And we believe that the promise will come our way, that we will experience care because we've made an anxiety transfer. Now, this promise doesn't hang in the air. No. First of all, this is how obedient you are, you are. How obedient I am. How am I going to do with this? How obedient am I? Anxiety? Not yours. What are you doing? Only on to it then. Obedience? Disobedience. You work that one out. Second one is this. Cast it. Cast it. Doesn't say, wait up a little bit. This is the point. Doesn't say, visit your elders. Doesn't say, dump it on your youth worker, cell group leader, or anything like this. It actually says, the command is this. I have anxiety. I need to throw it away. And I throw it onto him. Because the promise is there that he'll care for you. What does that mean? It means this. He cares about the thing that you are worrying about. That's the issue. He cares about the thing that you worry about. And he wants you to trust him with that thing. He wants to say, you see that thing? Why don't you let me hold it? I can hold it better than you. There's an interesting psalm, Psalm 107. I, when I was little, used to, uh, had psalms read to me by my dad. My dad used to sometimes say about this psalm, he used to say, this is for them that gets in trouble. Psalm. And Psalm 107, if you notice and you look through it, it talks about God rescuing people who are in trouble. And they get into trouble because of their own sin. They get into trouble because of their own stupidity. They get into trouble because they make bum decisions. They get into trouble because they could be a bunch of idiots. That's basically Psalm 107, as it pans out. Psalm 107 is the psalm of, for the plonkers, okay? The plonkers sermon, okay? You can decide whether you think at this point you are a plonker. I'll leave that one with you. But it's the plonkers. What happens is that they get themselves into mess. And then what happens is, that because they've got themselves into a mess, they've generally wrecked their lives because of something. Bad decision, sin, stupidity, all sorts of different things. And then they cry out to God. Now, if I was God at this point, I would utter those famous words that you always say to your children. Have you not learned anything that I have taught you over the last 37 and a half years? Isn't it? That's what the fathers do. That's the earthly fathers. What God says is this, okay? What you have done does not disqualify you from me rescuing you. Okay, I'll rescue you. 
That is extraordinary, extraordinary statement. Because I want to say, look, you have got into this, get yourself out of it. He doesn't do any conditions. He doesn't persecute them. He hears their cry and he saves them. Now, as far as I know, let's just suggest that maybe that at this point you've not been as far as them. But here it is. God, even in your worst, cares enough to come and rescue you. If you cry out to him. If you cry, he'll hear you, he will rescue you. Why can we guarantee that? Why can we guarantee that God will come and care for you? So we go to the cross. Don't you have noticed Phil Harmon? It's difficult not to notice, isn't it? I, I blend in. Phil, I once went to a conference a year ago with Phil Harmon, and Phil said, I'm not going to sit by you this time, he said, because I, I need to learn this worship thing. He said, but I'm going to go and blend in. I'm going to blend in. And so, and I, there's 5,000 people, so I went, ah, uh, there. <laughs> so Phil, when you go into Brighton Conference, you need to kneel if you're going to blend in, okay? So... Where was I? Oh, yeah. Where does the resource come from? When you go to the cross, which Phil always reminds us to do, when you go to the cross, you find out that there is mercy available at the cross. And that is why it's there. The fact that Jesus died in our place, the fact that he covered his sin, took all our guilt, removed our condemnation, made us perfect, made us righteous, all that sort of stuff, you know, it was all stuff that we can never perform on our own. And this is the ground in which we know that we can trust him because actually we can't do anything with our anxieties apart from get more anxiety out of it. The cross tells us that mercy is there for us. That's what the cross does. It tells us about Psalm 107. It tells us, if you like, that the cross is a fulfillment of Psalm 107. And because of the cross, we can know that we will never be ruled out from God's care. In short, you and I have a God who cannot but care. So here's the punch. Don't under-resource him. Don't under-resource him. Here's the bottom line. What you are worrying about right now actually is not yours. It's his. It's his to wear. In the last scene of Apollo 13, they come out of the capsule and the three astronauts um, line up ready to take this last flight into the atmosphere where they could be burnt up. And Tom Hanks playing uh, the starring role gets into the wrong seat. And the guy doesn't say anything. He just looks at him. And then suddenly he realizes something goes on. And he sees this guy. And he looks at the guy and he said, she's yours to fly. Here's your anxiety. I know it's a feminine thing, but we can get out. She's yours to fly. She's yours to fly. 
Lastly, our last individual in the hands of God is Pharaoh's daughter. Moses is left in the bulrushes, Exodus 1, 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast in the Nile, but you, but you shall uh, let every daughter live. What must the Nile have been like? What must the Nile have been like? And yet it's Pharaoh's daughter who on that day, at that time, goes to the Nile to bathe. Happens just to spot Moses. Happens to feel pity. Happens to just come across Moses' sister who happens to recommend a good nurse, who happens to be Moses' mother. She offers to, to pay for Moses, his mother's, uh, she offers to pay for the care of Moses. And in time, Moses would be brought to be educated as the grandson of the Pharaoh who was putting him to death. I know this is obvious, but sometimes we need to ask the most simple questions. Here's the questions. Who caused Pharaoh's daughter at that time to go and bathe? Who caused her to go and bathe there? Who caused her to see a wicker basket and a child in it? Who caused her to feel the emotion of pity for a child that her nation was putting to death? Who caused her to speak to Moses' sister? Who put the idea of paying Moses' mother for care into her mind? And so on. God did. Yeah, God did. Spectacularly, the new king who ordered the death of Hebrew sons would have a Hebrew grandson because God ordained it. Ordained it. The reformers call this providence. God is working in the seen and the unseen. The purpose or the goal of what is called divine providence is that he is wanting to accomplish his will and to ensure that he will move all sorts of people to make sure that that happens. Paul, the Apostle Paul, when trying to grab hold of the divine providence of God at the end of Romans, spurts out in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments! How unscrutable are his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counsellor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? And basically, the, the Apostle Paul has come to this conclusion. He said... My God is so big. My God is so big. Let me ask you a question. How big is your God? Is your God smaller than what you are facing or bigger than what you are facing? How can I check this? You can ask yourself a question. Do you believe that God is at work in your life? Do you believe that God is at work in the life of the church? 
Do you believe that God is at work in your life and in the church in an unseen area that you are still yet to discover? Do you believe that what God did for Moses, he can do for you? Do you believe that what God did for Moses, he can do for the church? If you say no to any of these, your God is too small. And you need to know a God who is much bigger than that. And probably you ventured on that track when you took God as a monkey blanket and not as the awe of God. Because if your God was the, if you had an awe of God, then you have a big God. If you're unsure, then pray because God is wanting you to experience and live in, an, in the exciting providence that he brings. He's wanting to thrill you with some unseen things that he can do for you. Imagine, this is my final point, I want to sing. I'm going to sing one on my own and Phil's going to sing one on a piano. But you're going to join me on my own because I'm going to look an idiot. Imagine, we're getting towards the end of the life of Moses and some of the younger guys have said to Moses, Moses, if we do a Barbie, would you come and tell us a little bit about your story? And they're all there, the, the spotty 17 and 18 and 19-year-olds and things like that. And it's a nice warm evening and Moses has trotted over like this and he's getting a little bit frail and he knows he's not ever going to get into the promised land but these young guys want to meet him. And as is usual, you know, not all of them have turned up because some of them are late and they get their clocks mixed up and all that sort of stuff. But he, and eventually he forgives them and that because they're young and youthful and that sort of stuff. And he begins to sit down by this fire with them and he begins to tell them a story. And he tells them this story. He tells them this story. I'll bet you every one of those young men would say, when I get to the end of my life, I want a story like that to be able to tell the young people in my family. I want to encourage you, have a story to tell of the wonders of God. The best thing that you can do is do the wonders of God so that you can tell people. So here's my song and then here's Phil's song. So here we go. Now, I only know the first line and a little bit of this one because it's a children's song and I don't mean to do the interview. So you've got to stand. And I'm in deep water if I don't know this. So this is... And not that one. Not that one. No, we do My God is So Big first. Yeah, that's it. Oh, is it? Okay. 